Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 149, Streams of Gold, Rivers of Blood, with Anthony Caldellis. Hello, everyone. This is the full interview with Professor Caldellis about his new book. It's an hour-long conversation discussing our sources, the Eastern campaigns, Basil's reign, and the role of the magnates. We conclude by talking about the period after Basil, leading up to the Battle of Manzikert. That's about 40 minutes in. For those of you who haven't listened to the last few episodes, Streams of Gold, Rivers of Blood is a narrative history of the period from when Nicephorus Phocas took over the Byzantine army until the First Crusade. Professor Caldellis analyzes all the sources available to us to present the most likely version of events. This involves unraveling the agendas and biases of various historians, which I find especially fascinating. And as with his other work, this book is extremely well written. It's easy to read and it walks the line very well between those who know little and those who've already begun to study the period. The Streams of Gold Rivers of Blood gets my highest possible recommendation. It's what I would want the podcast to be go check it out. At the end of the interview, Professor Caldellis also talks about another forthcoming book, A Cabinet of Byzantine Curiosities. This is a collection of tales and trivia from the political and religious life of Byzantium, some hilarious, some revolting, an eye-opening look at Byzantine life. Uh, jump to about 55 minutes in to hear more about that. Now, here's the full interview. Professor Caldellis, welcome back to the History of Byzantium podcast. Thank you, Robin. It's a great pleasure to be back. Oh, it's a huge pleasure to have you. And uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you were kind enough to let me see uh, Streams of Gold, Rivers of Blood before publication, and it's been massively helpful in guiding the podcast narrative. And so here we are to talk about it. Um, let's start at the beginning um, the last time we talked to you, we were talking about the Byzantine Republic. We are talking about sort of analyzing uh, Byzantine identity and things. Here we have a narrative history. 
um, from 955 to the First Crusade. Can you tell us what drew you to writing narrative history and why this period in particular? Yes, of course. So um, narrative history is not something that I had written before. Um, obviously, when you're writing any kind of history or historical analysis, there are going to be bits of narrative that come up or that are necessary for the argument. But I've never written a, uh, an extended um, narrative history uh, for its own sake. And I thought it would be an interesting challenge uh, for myself, um, <clears throat> in part because for many years I had been working on the sources from which we reconstruct history, so narrative sources, historiography, hagiography, and so on. And I had always been on the side of the argument which raises problems in, in using these sources, uh, that they're not uh, always to be trusted, that they are engaged in various literary or philosophical or political projects that distort or invent the, the, the events that they record. Um, it's very similar to, you know, in, in a way, trying to write a, a modern history, uh, given how, how politicized opinion is and uh, all these different reports that circulate. And now we have fake news, right, as a, as a category. Um, and so imagine from uh, a thousand years ago, if we only have a few of those voices. Uh, so how, how can we know that we can trust anybody? So it was a challenge for me to put myself on the other side of the equation and not just be the person who's saying, well, now, wait a minute, you can't necessarily use that source to, for factual reconstruction. Um, what do I say to someone who challenges me and says, well, what can we say? And so that was one of the challenges that I set myself for this book. Um, obviously, there's no formula that will uh, solve every, you know, every problem. But um, th that's where how I wanted to challenge myself. Also, I thought that it would be fun. <laughs> um, and it was uh, incredibly fun. Um, and I wanted to try it on a smaller period before possibly uh, trying it out on, on a, um, a larger scale. But that's not something that I have begun to do. It's just something that I'm thinking about. Mm. Uh, and so why this particular period? Well, this is a period for which um, I had worked on the main sources. I had either translated them or written about some of them uh, in the past. And so I already felt fairly comfortable with them. It's, um, it's a period where for which we begin to have more um, ambitious literary texts, right? So you, we start with something like Leo the Deacon, and then we have Celos and Italiates and so on. Um, and this is before we get to the really monumental Byzantine histories, um, such as those of Honiates and Katakuzinos and Grigoras that you will get to eventually. Um, but it's it's after a period where our main sources are mostly chronicles or brief lives and so forth. So the sources I had worked with um, also, I chose it because of, well, because of the nature of the events in question. We can talk about those later. 
um, but also because we have fairly good non-Greek sources for the period, um, the most important uh, ones of which had been translated, um, like Yahya of Antioch, and some, um, who's a Christian writing in Arabic, but also some Muslim historians writing in Arabic at the same time. Um, the Armenian sources, a Georgian chronicle that's very important. And so it was, um, it, this was an asset. In other words, um, the foreign sources are crucial for correcting um, the Greek ones, which tend to be rather sort of insular. So there's not any evidence that the Greek historians, that the historians, the Byzantine historians writing in Greek, that they were using foreign sources or foreign traditions. Um, and to a considerable degree, the same is true vice versa uh, in, in the other direction. So these independent linguistic traditions could be used to correct each other uh, in a way. So that was very useful. Yeah. Could you take us through that process, perhaps using Leo the Deacon as an example, because he wrote about the period listeners are familiar with Focus and Zimisky's wars. Um, what what would you say about him? You're reading him, and how do you pick out the things that you think are probably manufactured or are probably pretty accurate? Well, Leo the Deacon presents an interesting um, set of problems. This is one of our first rhetorically elaborated narrative histories that focuses on basically three reigns, but two main figures, right? So uh, Nicephorus Focus and John Smiskis. And is a major source, um, is one of the most cited sources in uh, 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 Byzantine scholarship. And I discovered something interesting about him, uh, about the way he wrote, which made me very distrustful of him. Um, and that was that wherever I could obtain independent information about a set of events um, or a particular event. Take, for example, the conquest of Crete, uh, where we actually have some other sources. It seemed to me that he was working on the basis of very little factual information and elaborating it um, with all kinds of um, sort of ancillary literary um, uh, works such as speeches and de descriptions, equatorical uh, ekphrases, but also, and this is where, what I thought was interesting, um, detailed descriptions of military maneuvers and like the, the technical minutia of warfare that normally don't appear in, in, in Byzantine histories or chronicles, but appear in his work to a considerable degree, like you know, how to establish a camp and what types of weapons and you know, what kind of unit and how it was moving and these kinds of things. And it, I realized eventually that, or at least I formed the suspicion that he was using um, sorry, military manuals to elaborate a small core of narrative fact. And this reversed the relationship that is normally assumed between him and the military manual. So the idea is that Leo the Deacon is used as a historical source to fact check the military manuals being written in the 10th century, 
uh, you probably discussed the ones associated with Nicephorus Phocus and others. So the 10th century is a period when um, a lot of um, the 9th and 10th centuries, uh, many military manuals are written or rewritten. And it's, it seemed as if he was confirming them. But in fact, I think he was actually using them mm-hmm. to elaborate the little data that he had. Um, so that was a problem with Leo the Deacon. Um, which is not to say that you know, his, his information is not worthless. I'm not saying that. Um, but when you take an event like the, the conquest of Crete, uh, 960-61, and you compare it to the other sources, and you whittle it down, um, you realize there's actually not that much there. So he's an interesting example of someone who you know elaborates on the data that he has. And to clarify, he would be doing that because he wants his work to be read like it's a great, uh, you know, like it's a it's a Homeric, you know, passage of, of battle scenes going on. He wa- he wants to flesh it out and show off his his writing skill. Yes, um, there is a considerable element of performativity. Um, and I think the, the overall objective is to, I mean, as for him as a literary artist, is to display the variety of literary genres that he's proficient in. And so you have passages like, like speeches, you have um, antiquarian digressions, he's talking about the origin of cities or of words, he, he has... Ekrasis, so these are detailed descriptions of people, like the yeah, description of Tumiskis or, um, uh, or of, of, of places, or also of uh, Zyatoslav, the description of him, which many artists have tried to reproduce, uh, right? And, and it's all just based on his description. He has passages of ethnography, like when he's talking about the pagan customs of the Rus and, uh, and so on. So it seems that he's trying to hit, like he has a checklist, right, of, of, of things that a proper literary historian needs to do, and he's checking them off. And I think that detailed military information is one of those things on his list, um, like, like, like a Thucydides or a, or a Polybius or something like that. Uh, so in the reigns of Focus and Zimis Keys, um, which we've just been covering, um, you kind of identify um, more things both in the sources and then in the later historiography that you call into question. Um, to take a small example, um, Romanus II's wife, Theofano, is in some sources involved in multiple deaths. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you kind of call into question whether she was involved in any of it. Um, and that whether that's just a trope of a Byzantine writers blaming a convenient female scapegoat for what was going on. Can you talk about that a little more? Yes, of course. So um, I think, for the benefit of our listeners, that she was she's blamed in various sources for the deaths of Constantine VII, her father-in-law, uh, Romanos II, her husband, um, Nicephorus Phocus, also her second husband, in part by um, inviting in his, his allegedly inviting in his murderer Timiskis and making the, the murder possible. Is it also Timiskis? I, I, I know that Timiskis was 
also alleged to have been poisoned by um, Basel, um, the uh, the Parakimomenos. Uh, I can't remember right now whether she was also blamed for that in a different tradition. Um, anyway, it is this poor woman. I mean, she, I think she was a very convenient scapegoat uh, for almost everybody involved. Um, Tsimiskis um, was the one who I think blamed her um, for the um, assassination of Nikiforos Fokas or, you know, anyway, had her exiled uh, very quickly, um, in part because, um, remember, so someone has to be blamed for some of these things, but also as the mother of Basel II, she was both the person who could be relied on to uphold the interests of her children, the heirs to the throne, most strongly, right, against the wishes of all of these generals who want to, you know, muscle their way onto the throne. Um, but also, later, when, you know, all the civil wars between Basel and the generals, um, there were intense propaganda uh, campaigns being waged at that time by both sides and the scleros and focus um, sides in the later wars. So these are in the 70s and 80s. They produced a lot of propaganda and some of it was very pro focus, the emperor, and some of it was very anti Macedonian dynasty. And I think that a lot of it um, was directed at, at, at Basel's mother, Theophano. Um, so there are accusations of, you know, her low birth, um, that she was working in a tavern, I think. Um, also these ideas that she was a poisoner and so forth. I think it's entirely possible uh, that she did nothing whatsoever. And nevertheless, these accusations can still come up. So I don't think that there is, uh, you know, Wherever there's smoke, there's fire, as a colleague of mine once put it, where there's smoke, there's usually a smoke-making machine. Hmm. And, okay, so that's one, that's one, one set of, but besides poisoning is such an easy charge to make and impossible to, to disprove or really prove. It's just basically creating suspicion about someone. Uh, but how could anybody have actually known that? Is secret things done that leave no evidence, really. I mean, those are, um, that, that's just suspicion. Uh, I mean, just think of like Russian imperial history, right, where everybody is supposed to be poisoning everybody. Anybody who dies, you know, who isn't like very, 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 very old, and even some of them are supposed to have been poisoned. So, yeah, this kind of accusation acquires a life of its own. What about the story of Nicephorus Phocas, the emperor, while he's emperor, um, that he tried to attack Bulgaria, but then changed his mind. Mm. And that one is in Leo the Deacon. Do you remember this story? Yes. Yes. And it's famous incident because he, he like insults and, I don't know, strikes or has his attendants strike the Bulgarian ambassadors uh, for demanding some kind of tribute, which is never really specified. And he calls them like leather eating barbarians or something like that. And then he decides he's going to invade and show those Bulgarians and he gathers his army and it's all very vague. There are no names, there's no dates, there's no, you know, nothing very specific. And then he realizes that, wait a minute, there are mountains in the Balkans. 
and what? That makes it very. <laughs> and then he he just like ravages some forts and goes back home. And it's all. <laughs> I was trying to make sense of this because for every event, I was trying to think. Um, you know, what are the intentions behind the people involved and what are they trying to achieve? Um, and does it fit with events before and after? Okay. And that one just did not fit at all. Uh, it was vague. It was very rhetorical. It was clearly meant to make Nicephorus focus look belligerent. I mean, but in a good way, like tough, like he was tough on those barbarians and he showed them. Um, but without committing itself to any specific historical information, uh, like when you tried to put any of it on a map or in a timeline, it just didn't work. And I and and it didn't it also didn't um, map onto events before or after. Like we have an independent account uh, just like a few months later and the Bulgarians are honored guests at the court. And I thought this doesn't make any sense. This is very likely a pro-focus propaganda that was put out by the Focus family to show how their own family was tough on the Bulgarians at a time when Basil II had just been defeated by the Bulgarians. Um, you'll get to that in 986. Um, and so to show that, that you know, they're tough on, on barbarians and Basil is weak. Uh, so that's, that was my, that was my instinct. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, the crisis then unfolds and it, this is the explanation for what his you know what his part was in it um looking at focus and zemiskis's conquests and this is kind of moving the discussion on to the the historiography um you know and a lot of listeners uh, you know see the romans making conquests and ask you know what was the plan and what was their goal were they going to march on into Syria and the Levant or wherever and try to restore the empire. And you kind of address that in the book, again, by looking at the sources and kind of looking at the pattern of behavior as it actually played out. I think you, you conclude that actually further conquests beyond where they've reached in 976 was pretty unlikely and, and was never was never sort of a specific plan that either emperor was necessarily going to go beyond Antioch. That's right. So there was a specific plan, I believe, to reconquer Cilicia. Um, possibly Antioch was part of the original plan. Um, certainly um, Crete and Cyprus. Uh, and to reduce Aleppo as far as possible, I don't think they could have imagined that they would have succeeded so much as to reduce it to a basically a client state, which they did. I think that was a plan, and I think that plan had been formulated um, in the mid-50s, 950s, and that's why I started the book then, because um, I believe that the, the, the Byzantine strategy of defense um, against the, especially the, the Hamdanids um, in Aleppo changed in 955 when Nicephorus Focus was appointed basically the com commander of the um, Roman armies. I think that the idea was to eliminate the threat and not just deal with it. And they implemented um, a, a very carefully thought out strategy for reducing Cilicia and Aleppo and eventually Antioch. So it, it, 
in, including the islands. So the, the plan basically took 15 years. So from 955 to 970, let's say, with Antioch um, and, and the reduction of Aleppo to client status in that year, um, that was the plan. And it makes perfect sense. Uh, that is the um, territory that they thought was most defensible, um, that especially in order to protect the Roman homeland in Asia Minor, in other words, having the Taurus Mountains as the border allowed for these constant raids um, by Muslim armies, um, massive raids sometimes, very destructive. Um, so the strategy of reducing those territories, either expelling or converting their Muslim population and resettling them with Romans and Armenians, many of whom were part of the army, um, and making Antioch into basically a, a forward base. Um, of the empire, it worked. It worked brilliantly for almost a century. Beyond that, um, well, first of all, there's no proof of any concerted plan to conquer more. And secondly, it wouldn't have made any sense. The, the Byzantines were not interested in absorbing mostly Muslim territory. That was very difficult to govern. And they didn't want it. And th since their objectives were primarily strategic and ha they had achieved those, there was really no reason to go beyond that. Um, so the plan is really a focus plan. Uh, it was implemented when Nicephorus was placed in charge of the army um, for 15 years after that, and it wasn't changed thereafter. Now, what you see afterwards are, you know, occasional raids, right? So Tsimiskis goes on these raids, just these big circuits where you go by Damascus, end up on the coast. The one place that they were interested in taking but never did was Tripoli um, for the purposes of um, that. They wanted that as a forward base against naval attacks, and they never actually conquered it, though there were times when they exercised some kind of distant... Um, you know, patron relationship over it. But anyway, uh, beyond that, it was just plunder. Um, in other words, when they go on these big raids into um, the into the Mesopotamia, or the Near East, uh, the, down the coast, uh, that's just for you know showing strength and gathering plunder. Um, and that's how it remained for um, for about a for about a century. Uh, and this is completely different context, remember, from what was going on in the Caucasus uh, with Armenia, Georgia, and in the Balkans with Bulgaria. Those are two, those are three very different theaters. Um, but you asked about the one in the southeast. Yes. And yes. I, I think that was the plan. So it's a focus plan. It was carried out successfully. And then they just maintained it. It was all about maintaining the equilibrium that they had established, which worked very well. Uh, look at Asia Minor. The raids stopped until the Seljuks show up. Um, so it worked. Yeah. And I think you I think you sort of imply in the book that, say, um, Sclerus or, or Bardas Focus or whoever had become emperor instead of Basil probably nothing would have changed on that front, that they might have continued raiding and seen what had happened, but there was no sort of defensible frontier to advance to. So there, there, was, no, there was no profit in trying to expand. 
Exactly. And there are a number of moments when the emperors, the, the, the Byzantine emperors command an overwhelming military advantage. Uh, and Tsimiskis, uh, during his great raid um, in uh, 75 and later Basil II, when he twice visits the east, they show up with these, you know, imperial armies that are, you know, conquering armies. There's no credible defense against them. Uh, they clearly could have done more damage or conquered or tried to conquer. But I think they knew, they understood pretty well that it would just have been impossible to establish imperial authority uh, among those populations. Um, you know, Antioch was still a primarily a Christian city. Um, you know, probably mostly Melkites or Arabic speaking Christian, but Christian nonetheless. And in the Islamic configuration of ge geography and empire, Antioch had been a backwater. It hadn't been that important. Uh, but as an oper a forward operating base of the Byzantine Empire, it was very important. But what would you do with Aleppo? And it would have just been too vulnerable and too hostile. And anyway, they got what they wanted from it in the form of a treaty. Um, which which kept, they kept for for about a century, and that brings us on to Basil II, um, who you know worked hard to maintain that balance, and then obviously is famous for his wars in Bulgaria. Um, and people, uh, you know, listeners may be thinking, well, there'll be a lot of history writing about Basil and about his uh, his wars with Bulgaria because he's the Bulgar slayer. And can you tell us about the big problems we have in trying to reconstruct Basil's reign and kind of explain to listeners the, the problem of East and West and how histories don't necessarily cover both and, and indeed the middle with Constantinople? Yes, um, those are indeed the big problems of the reign. So this is the longest reign of any Roman emperor, right? Even as the sole, technically the sole uh, emperor or, uh, I mean, he had his brother um, Constantine VIII along with him the whole time, uh, but he was the senior emperor from 976 to 1025. So that's, let's say 50 years. That's longer than any other reign. And, and also he had been crowned, I think, at, <laughs> at the age of, two uh, or something. So that adds another 16 years to his like nominal reign while, while these other generals are, are running the, the show. I mean, even under Phocas and Simiskis, they were, they were often acknowledging that Basel is like the emperor and their co-emperors. So there's a very, very long reign. And um, we, we we always have to keep in track, uh, keep in mind Basel's experiences of the court and of his youth, and of what yeah, all these generals, right, uh, uh, muscling their way into the palace uh, uh, twice at least. Uh, so those are experiences that were formative for him. Now, what are the problems with the rest of the reign? Well, um, in a nutshell, our sources, our narrative sources are generally good for the first. 13 years. So until the end of the um, civil wars in the in 989, let's say, after that, they become very, very uh, poor, um, very sparse recording. Um, 
our eastern source. So since Basel was primarily active in the Balkans fighting this long war against Bulgaria, our eastern sources in Arabic don't pay that much attention to what was going on in the Balkans. So we, again, we don't have that much information um, from them, which would otherwise have been very, very useful. They're very useful um, in discussing the civil wars and anything that happened in the east, but not so much for um, Bulgaria. Also, uh, this is a period, so after the end of the civil wars, uh, you know, Byzantium enters a, a period of, of growing prosperity, probably economic and demographic growth. There, there aren't that many problems, uh, destructive events, um, riots, and that sort of thing to record. Um, there's some earthquakes, of course, in Constantinople. There's one that damages the Sophia, but even that falls within the purview of our narrative sources. They do mention that, but for the for the other thirty some years, they're very poor. Our main chronicle source is uh, John Scalitzi's, and he he stops his narrative basically and picks it up again in 1014. Uh, and he says that the, the, the Basel and the Bulgarians had been fighting wars every year up to that point, but he's just going to omit it all and just pick up the thread right before the defeat of Bulgaria. Um, it's like he, it's almost as if he just doesn't want to go, slog through the endless raids and counter raids and battles and so on that lasted 30 years um, or more, actually. Uh, so the, the the war with Bulgaria, you can date its beginning to maybe 986, but certainly from the nine, early 990s. And it lasted until 20, 1025. It was one of the longest wars in Roman history. I mean, think about it. Longer than the Punic Wars. Um, two empires, very large and powerful states, uh, and Bulgaria is far more powerful at this time than might appear uh, because we know very little about it, right? We don't have Bulgarian sources. We don't even know exactly the extent of the Bulgarian Empire. But clearly it gave the Byzantines a very hard time um, for, you know, remember, Byzantium is a state that has basically easily obliterated all of these emirates in the east. Um, reduced them to client status, you know, reconquered Crete and Cyprus and has been annexing principalities in Armenia and so on. And yet, you know, Bulgaria gives it still incredible amount of difficulty. Um, so it must have been, you know, comparable in some ways. We just don't have that much information about it. Um, so this is one of the longest and most bitterly fought wars in all of Roman history. And yet we know so little about it. Um, anyway, so it's difficult to reconstruct, but you're right. There's this gap. There's this big gap of information about Basel's reign, especially about Constantinople. We're not even sure that the emperor was there a lot of the time. Right. I mean, Basel II is a unique emperor in so many ways. Right. Uh, the length of his reign. Uh, the fact that he never married, right? He he seems to have never tried to produce an heir. Um, 
And also, uh, he, he left the patriarchate vacant for four years this one time. And anyway, I suspect that he probably wasn't in Constantinople all that much. Uh, nor do I think that he had his brother there. So the theory is that, yeah, so if Basel is off fighting the Bulgarians all the time, he had Constantine VIII in the capital just sort of acting as the emperor. But I'm not sure about that. Uh, I don't think he, he trusted his brother all that much. Um, the evidence that we have suggests that he either dragged him along with him, just probably to keep an eye on him, or had him confined to these villas around um, the, the Sea of Marmara or wherever. So it's possible that Constantinople didn't see the emperor all that much for, the, for a long time. Uh, that's extraordinary. Um, but we just have no way of picturing it. We can't see what it looks like. Is there any... Is there any comment in the sources about that not taking a wife and not having a family um, that, that gives us any insight into why he might have done that? No, uh, not in not in any credible source. Um, there's a Western chronicle. Uh, I can't remember the name offhand. It was, says that uh, Basel took monastic vows. <laughs> uh. No, he, he didn't. But but it might look that way uh, if you. You know, if you saw it from a distance, the closest we can get to a Byzantine explanation of this is the advice that the defeated rebel Skliros gives to Basel about how to govern. And it's basically something like, oh, you know, don't trust anybody. Keep all the nobles busy with, you know, I don't know, moving them around or threatening them with taxation or something like this. And he also says, and just don't fill the palace with, you know, all, all these women and intrigue and all of that. Um, so, so let's go back to the formative experiences that I mentioned earlier. Um, so Basel had seen his mother remarry uh, to Nicephorus Focus, um, and that didn't work out well. And then. She was exiled by another general who was brought in, and like all these um, ambitious men are trying to like replace him, and there's all this intrigue about uh, you know empresses and imperial marriage connections and who marries whom and how all of these people are all this aristocracy, especially the military aristocracy, is all intermarried, and they're trying to get their people in the palace and so forth. And he probably, his experience of all of that was that it was just trouble. Um, like, who is he going to marry? This would bring her, you know, relatives into the palace. And he would have to, I don't know. Like, okay, presumably he could have found a way to marry uh, someone acceptable without that kind of trouble. But I think his solution was just not to not to bring it into the palace. At least this is what's implied in Selos, who who mentions this advice um, given to him by um, the rebel Skliros. Um, so, but, but no, it, it remains a mystery because that's not a very satisfactory explanation. And and Spelos gives us um, the best character descriptions of of Basil, but. He is writing for a specific purpose, and so you find him, as good a writer as he is, also a bit untrustworthy. Yes, uh, about Basil II. 
Um, I don't think he <clears throat> set out to distort Basel II. I, um, I think it, he certainly set out to distort the reign of Constantine the Eleventh. Um, uh, sorry, Constantine the Ninth Monomachos in the eleventh century. Um, that's a separate topic. Um, and I think that his image of Basel was meant to be a kind of standard of imperial behavior against which later emperors could be found wanting when they were compared to it. Um, so he constructs Basel in a particular way as a kind of very level-headed, down-to-earth, military micromanager. Uh, that's kind of the image that emerges. Basel is not interested in any of the pomp and ceremony of the office. He doesn't listen to courtiers or flatterers. He spends all of his time you know, with the army. He micromanages the army, he's reading the manuals. He, you know, he's just only interested in those kinds of things. And he's not interested in higher learning or uh, you know, rhetoric. Um, and uh, he's, a, he's sort of a tough disciplinarian, but he brings home the victories. It's a, it's a kind of scientific expertise, right, when it comes to war. It's not glamorous. He, he, in fact, Basel is hostile to um, heroics, right? So his soldiers are not supposed to, uh, you know, rush forward and, um, you know, attack the enemy on their own and win heroic, you know, Homeric combat. No, no, no. He, Basel punishes those kinds of uh, behaviors, even if they lead to victory, right? So he wants a very disciplined you know, army under his control. So that's a specific image of military leadership that Salas constructed. You can see it, uh, that how he's constructing it, right? This isn't a, um, an immaculate vision of the man as he was. It's a literary construct. Uh, our question, of course, is why does Salas present Basel that way? Um, um, that, so that's a, that's a separate question. But it is the most striking picture of Basel that we have. Yeah, surely to some degree it was accurate. I mean, yes, the man spent his um, all of his adult life in, in in military camps, probably. Yeah. So that's where we're headed next into into Basil's reign, and obviously we want uh, people to buy the book and find out more about what comes next. But as we've got you here, do you want to talk about some of your conclusions because? Post Basel, um, again in the historiography, there are attempts to look for decline and for collapse because so abruptly in the 1070s do does this empire that's expanded start collapsing, uh, and then beyond that the Crusades. Um, do you want to share some of the the conclusions you drew or things that struck you as you know you taking on this project? Um, what things you discovered that you actually were surprised by or didn't know before you started? Oh, yes, of course. So um, first, let me just say that I am not allergic to ideas of decline. Uh, you know, these days, the uh, Byzantinists are supposed to instinctively say, no, there was no decline. We can I'll reinterpret it in using other words. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, states decline in the same way that they rise and uh, or, if, you know, when looked at imperially, economically, intellectually, whatever. And there's no question that there was decline in the 11th century. They lost Asia Minor, <laughs> which was 
the empire um, uh, for the most part uh, in the early 10th century. Right? If you think about it, during the 11th century, the, the Byzantine Empire flipped its geographical orientation from being mostly Anatolian with some Balkan holdings to mostly Balkan with some Anatolian holdings. Um, so something happened there, and I was very interested to find out what. Um, and so in part, the book is really an investigation of what enabled Byzantium. How did it happen that this period of intense um, um, and successful um, imperial expansion um, in the later 10th and early 11th century uh, was followed so quickly by um, uh, an imperial um, collapse, a political collapse, it, you know, the empire fell into civil wars, um, many of them at the same time as foreign enemies were invading in, in Italy and the Balkans and the East, so things went very, very wrong. So some of the conclusions, well, let me, let me point to the, to the, um, the uh, avenues that I use to approach the problem because they actually start in this period. So one of, the, one of the themes of the book is imperial vulnerability. So for all that we think of emperors as being very powerful and sort of ideologically you know, absolute and so forth, in reality, Byzantine emperors were occupied a very um, vulnerable position uh, in that there was no secure basis for their legitimacy other than you know, popularity and just general support by the elements of society that could keep them there. Uh, whenever you lost that support, uh, you were very likely to be replaced, um, and probably violently. Um, so emperors are always trying to make sure that they remain popular and that there aren't any significant um, sources of opposition to their reign. And this results in a number of strategies that they pursue uh, in order to stay in power. And so in the book, I look at those different strategies and how emperors with different backgrounds, um, you know, tried to use their strengths and how they compensated for their weaknesses. So, for example, in the in this period, in like the 10th century, you see that um, so emperors such as Phocas and Simiskis, and later on Basil II, when he reinvents himself, they are relying on their military prestige. Right? So service in the army, commanding the armies, winning, and so forth. Um, that is a very um, adequate uh, source of imperial legitimacy in the Roman tradition. But it's not, um, it's not the final word. So, for example, when you see that Phocas begins to grow unpopular um, because of, um, you know, his fiscal um, policies and just his, his personality began to, you know, rub people in Constantinople the wrong way. He became very unpopular. Um, and when he was murdered, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, complaining about that uh, outside of his, you know, family circle. Uh, Tsimiskis was able to take the throne and nobody, you know, wept over Nicephorus Phocas. Um, so uh, there were lots of different arenas that emperors had to uh, be active in and make sure that their image was positive. And so what I do in the book is I trace this problem of imperial vulnerability. What happens, especially in the 11th century, when emperors 
don't have the kinds of military credentials and prestige that, you know, Tsimiskis or Basel II had. How do they deal with that? How do they command the armies? And what you see is over time, they rely more and more on eunuch generals from their households. And this eventually leads to a crisis. Uh, the, the bearded officer class, as the sources call them, just had had enough of all of these top positions going to eunuchs from the emperor's household. Um, so that's one strand. Um, there are other strands, uh, such as um, economic. Uh, so fiscal policy. This ties into the theme of imperial vulnerability in the following way. The emperors in the 11th century, they lacked the kind of military prestige that Foucault or Chimiskis had. Nevertheless, they had one thing in abundance, and that was cash. And they tended to buy political support. And I talk in the book a little bit about how they did that. So... You know, obviously dispensing gifts and titles and cat and salaries and that made you very popular. But it tended to put a big burden on the treasury. And over time, especially once we reached the mid 11th century, this had led to a fiscal crisis. Uh, the emperors just simply didn't have enough to pay for all of these favors that they had doled out in order to keep people happy uh, with their reigns. So this led to a crunch. Uh, and because they couldn't borrow money from banks, um, this meant they had to cut back and so on, on some expenses. And so I look at where they're beginning to cut back. And anywhere you cut, right, will cause problems. Um, so that was another um, uh, element uh, of, of in, this, in the you know, cycle of decline that the state had entered, you know, in addition to foreign invaders, obviously. But let me just say one more thing about the fiscal aspect. One thing that I realized in reading through the sources and trying to understand the events was that one of the main narratives um, about this period that I had been taught in grad school and that you read in many of the standard sources, the histories, just wasn't there. Um, and this was the idea that this period was marked by attention and hostilities between, on the one hand, the Macedonian dynasty, the court system, and on the other hand, the so-called big landowners of Asia Minor. And the big landowners were assumed to be the same as the military officer class. And so there's some kind of socioeconomic class warfare going on between the centralized state and, and the quasi or proto-feudal uh, military landowning aristocracy. So I came to the conclusion, just looking in the sources, that we don't have any evidence for such a quasi-feudal landowning aristocracy. And if one existed, it was probably the church. Um, it had nothing to do with the generals. Um, this, to make a long story short, I mean, I discussed these issues in the book in some detail, but whenever the military class took the throne, or whenever officers from this military background took the throne with their names like Focas or Comninos or whatever, they pursued the same kinds of policies with respect to land um, that the Macedonian emperors had. They kept the same legislation in power, sometimes they enforced, they, sometimes they even 
strengthened it. They did nothing to suggest that they're implementing some kind of class agenda, which suggested to me that the conflicts were not, in fact, um, about uh, state policy regarding land and rents and taxes, but in fact were about um, the army, control of the army, and also the salaries. And it turns out, if you look at recent studies of the Byzantine aristocracy and the court system, that the court salaries, say, uh, paid to top generals, were probably a, a larger source of revenue for them than their own personal land uh, would have been. Uh, we actually don't have any proof that these generals were great landowners. I mean, they probably were, uh, because that's where you invest wealth, right, in, in the Middle Ages. But uh, their land was not the source of their power. Consistently, again and again, the source of their power was holding office and having acquired prestige in the holding of that office, plus the salaries that came with that office. So I ended up rejecting this um, uh, socioeconomic model of land-owning class warfare, um, which is a model that had been an attempt to you know, kind of force Byzantium into a sort of loosely Marxist uh, view of history uh, and finally make it, you know, get with the program and get feudal. <laughs> um, I don't think that happened during this period. And instead, I suggest a different socioeconomic model that's based on state revenues and, and salaries when it comes to the civil wars. Now, when it comes to the church, uh, the church sort of acquiring more and more land in the province is clearly happening. And I think that the emperors were more concerned about the church as a landowner than, than their own officers. But that's a separate dynamic that, as far as I can tell, never played into the civil wars, never played into, you know, the military history of Byzantium or really even the political history. Um, so those those kinds of narratives have to be kept separate. Um, that's the major framework argument. So to bring it all the way back to where we are in 976 poised for these civil wars. Um, it's not that Focus and Scleros are landed magnates um, with a with an agenda against the sitting emperor. It's that their families have been in charge of the whole military apparatus for the last fifty years, and he, the the state, is now threatening to appoint other men and you know reduce their influence over it. Exactly. In fact, had reduced their influence. So. In, in the cases of both rebels, Skleros and Focas, uh, their rebellions are followed by, are, um, follow acts which they probably saw as quasi-demotions. And they saw that the court was trying to diminish their influence with the armies, possibly build up counter um, uh, groups of uh, you know, potential generals or actual generals to use them, you know, as a counterweight. Um, and the Fogadis had uh, gotten quite used to running the state for a long time. Uh, Skleros had been the top guy under um, Tzimiskis. Um, and so there was just discontent about the loss of standing prestige 
and you know power. Now, don't forget also that Byzantium at at this very moment is owns the most powerful armies around. Uh, you know, these aren't the old thematic troops that are being called up every year for an annual you know counter raid or something. I mean, obviously, yes, there there are a number of those kinds of soldiers still um, in the armed forces, but they also have much more significant um, body of professional full-time soldiers who have an experience of successful conquest now. So these are more powerful armies. And control over these more powerful weapons is something that drives a lot of the conflict. Um, I think they would have been happy if, if Basel had just remained a mere figurehead, you know, possibly even accepting another general you know, handler as co-emperor. I think that's what these guys wanted. But you'll notice that they never say, um, oh, we're, you know, we want to overthrow the emperor because we want to reduce uh, restrictions on acquiring more land. Not only do they never say that, they never do that even when they do win. So that just doesn't seem to be a, 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 a part of the dynamic. The, the generals, when they took the throne, also wanted to keep powerful armies funded in exactly the same way. Um, so it really is a struggle over control of state resources, the army and the tax system. They didn't want to change them. They just wanted to control them. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to have to draw to a close and uh, recommend people go and buy the book, which is out now. Um or will be in a couple of days over here in the UK. Um, and before I say thank you again for coming on, is there? Do you can you sort of tell us what you're working on now, or what might be forthcoming? Um, as listeners have gotten to know your work over the years uh, quite well. Um, sure. So there are. Well, I'm, I'm, a rather. A uh, trivial thing, which I don't know if I really should mention here, but uh, it's a it's a fun little entertaining interlude uh, in all of the scholarship. It's it's called a Cabinet of Byzantine Curiosities, um, which is a book. Uh, it's not a monograph. It's a collection of uh, jokes, short stories, insults, and such from Byzantium that just are entertaining and amusing and weird. Uh, so it's it's a book just crammed full of interesting facts about Byzantium, many of which are not very well known um, from some obscure sources sometimes. Uh, and a lot of them are funny uh, because the Byzantines had great sense of humor um, at times. Uh, so that, that should be out af soon after the summer, but it doesn't mm, really have a conscious argument uh, uh, other than I wanted to highlight certain areas of Byzantine life that uh, are, are not very well known. But the next monograph that I'm working on is, as an argument will, will be a book called um, Ethnicity and Empire in Byzantium. At least that's the tentative title. And it does draw a lot on my research on the 10th and 11th centuries. And it's basically a, a, an art. It's a, it's an attempt to understand the degree to which Byzantium was an empire, really. I mean, we call it an empire. That's a very conventional term. Um, when we call it an empire, we don't always mean 
what's associated with the words empire. And these days, there, there's a lot of study of empires sort of throughout history. And there's a real question about whether Byzantium was an empire. Uh, and so that if we define empire as um, a state that is the product of conquest, I mean, usually military by of a number of different groups or ethnic groups or ethno-religious groups by one, you know, ruling group, usually some sort of ethnicity or city or whatever. Um, and, and how are different ethnicities and different religions within the empire governed, like with respect to their difference? Um, that's an interesting question about empires that's never really been posed uh, in the case of Byzantium, um, in part for a number of reasons. Uh, the biggest one being the denial of the Byzantine's Roman identity has left a kind of ethnic vacuum uh, in the in the heart of Byzantium when we talk about it. So everybody can talk about Armenians and Slavs and Jews and Muslims, but we're not allowed to talk about Romans. And so there's this big black hole um, that we can, in the scholarship, we can only discern this by its outline, you know, like a black hole. Uh, but if we just, dis, you know, just cut through all of the nonsense uh, that's accumulated over this question and accept that the Byzantines were who they said they were, it's not a very difficult thing to do. Uh, then you can actually begin to see how, you know, Greek-speaking Orthodox Romans governed uh, other people uh, whose, you know, cultural attributes were different from those. Either they weren't Greek-speaking or they weren't Christian Orthodox or they weren't Romans within their state. How, how did they do that? Uh, so that's a question about empire. So that's what I'm working on now. That sounds great. So more more exploration of byzantine identity and sounds like a the um cabinet of curiosities could be a good uh stocking filler to get people into byzantium uh, yeah it's also a great source of anecdotes uh you can uh you know if you're lecturing on byzantium you can sprinkle those in to, for fun and uh, <laughs> i mean in part that's where i drew them from i was like well what anecdotes work in class best and so i just kind of filled the book with those anyway brilliant well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and uh, hope to speak to you again at some point. No, thank you, Robin. It's a great pleasure and uh, keep up the good work. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 